That was marvelous. Thank you, Pam, for all the ways you have served throughout the years and continue to as she makes her way back to the choir loft. When I say the phrase, the end times, yeah, I already see people shaking their heads. That's the response I expected. What comes to mind when you hear the phrase, the end times? Maybe it's a phrase that you've heard a, a preacher in my position or an author use in a really unhelpful or even harmful way. Maybe that's why you're already uncomfortable wherever you are. Maybe you think about that street corner uh, prophet preacher holding the sign that says, the end is near, you know, or maybe it's a sign that tells you just how much God hates you and the, the level of depth of hell that you're being thrown into, right? Such a helpful evangelistic tool. Maybe you think about Kirk Cameron selling doomsday kits on some fringe Christian TV station. You know the one I'm talking about, right? It's late at night, and you're just bored and kind of channel surfing, and then eventually you get, and you're like, wait, is that the kid from Growing Pains? Oh my gosh, I wonder what he's up to. And, and then you think like, oh, he's really sad and weird now. This is awkward. And then you think to yourself, what do I smell? Oh shoot, that's the pizza I put in the oven without a timer on. Oh no, I hope it's not. Oh, it's burnt. Dang it, Kirk Cameron, why did you burn my pizza? Is that just me? That might just be me. The point is this, when you hear the word the end times or the phrase the end times, it's probably not a phrase that brings about a lot of warm fuzzies in your soul or in your heart. But in the world of theology, in the theological conversation, what we believe about the end is really important. And we have to talk about it in the church because it's one of those frequently unspoken kind of theologies because we're scared of it and we don't want to deal with it. And we see a lot of books on Amazon with wild book covers that handle it really poorly. And we're like, well, I don't want to talk about that stuff, right? But, but here's the thing. The reason why it's important is I'm committed to this idea that what we believe about the end, what we believe about the end can and will inform the way that we live in the present. What we believe about how things end up is going to shape the way that we live in the present. And whether or not we choose to talk about it, a lot of, I imagine, that, that feeling of distance that so many of us are feeling from perhaps other Christians, specifically in America, in terms of what we believe our work is to be about these days, like the root of that frequently is a theology of the end. So let's talk about that today. Let's talk about how things end, because here's the good news. The story of the end is actually, it's a happy ending when we take a look at it. We're going to look at two texts this morning, one from, wait for it, the book of Revelation, everybody's favorite, buckle up. Those at home, don't hit pause. You're not allowed to, to bounce out on YouTube just because you're like, this is going to go off the rails. It will, but it's going to be fun. So we're going to look at Revelation chapter 21, and then we're also going to look at Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Um, and, and hopefully by the end, um, we can A, have a greater understanding as to why end times theology has gotten so weird, specifically in American Christianity, and B, have a greater understanding of what it is that most, overwhelmingly most Christians throughout all of history and throughout all the world today actually believe about the end and why it is that we here at AUMC behave the way that we do in the present. So let's read 
Revelation 21. If you don't know anything about the book of Revelation, uh, it's the last book in the canonical Bible. It was written by a guy named John who was doing his best to capture this vision that he'd received from God, almost like a fever dream, and he was trying to write it down in a way that made sense to him and also would make sense to people living in his context and culture and community in his day of the first century church. Right? So this was not a book written for us in 21st century Dallas. It's full of symbology and metaphor and all these things that when you read about the mark of the beast and dragons and lakes of fire and you're like, what is going on? Think about if you asked a caveman to describe an airplane. Right? John is trying to capture this like millennia in the future end time uh, vision that he's received from God. If you a caveman to describe an airplane, he would say something like, well, it's like a metal bird, and it eats people, and its wings are on fire, and then it flies, oh, and there's people in its brain, and it flies, and then it lands, and it vomits everyone up, and that's an airplane, right? It's a weird image of an airplane, but it makes sense to him, right? So John's trying to do the same thing with this vision he's received. There's no way he can fully understand it, and he's putting it into terms that might make sense for someone like him and people like him living in his day and age. So in chapter 21, it says this. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Again, metaphors that work for John. They may not work for you. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God will be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. God, who is seated on the throne, said, I am making everything new. And then God said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So this vision that John receives from Revelation is a really, it sounds good, right? Like God is eliminating death. God is eliminating mourning and crying and pain. God is making everything new. This is like a big universal kind of party, right? All are invited. This is a really happy ending. And yet, somewhere along the way, we got into the weeds on this beliefs about end times, and um, we began to think something about this ending that, that is not really scriptural and is remarkably recent and uniquely American, and it's something called the rapture. Have you ever heard of this? Anybody? Now, if you're a big fan of the rapture, I'm about to step on some toes. I'm going to warn you now. So brace your feet. Put your steel-toed boots on, okay? Because here's the deal. Proponents of the rapture would like you to believe, and I'm going to explain what it is in just a second. They'd like you to believe that it's been around forever. Like, that's the original way to understand how things end, when actually it's only been around for a few hundred years. So uh, as I get into it, the rapture is this basic idea, um, and it comes from, get this, one word, 
Let's just start there. One word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's a Greek word that means uh, to be taken up. And uh, it's this line that says uh, people will be taken up. Those who believe in Christ will be taken up to be with God. And that one word in one letter in one spot in the Bible, a whole theology was born out of, right? Well, there, that's some firm footing to start with, right? Um, and, and the idea is that one day Jesus will come back and he will scoop up all the field mice. No, he will scoop up all the good children, all the good people, people like you and me, of course, we're squeaky clean, right? And, uh, and, and we all get to go live in heaven and have fun. Meanwhile, those who are left behind, TMTM, Kirk Cameron movie series, made better by Nick Cage, fight me, fight me. Nick Cage makes everything better. There's this seven-year period of tribulation where everyone suffers, and then maybe if you're good, you also get to go to heaven. But then at the end, everything gets destroyed, like wiped out, burned up. Earth is gone. And then God builds a nice new one, and it's shiny. It's got that new earth smell to it and everything. And then all the good people are brought down, and we get to live there. That's basically the rapture in a nutshell. It was started a few hundred years ago by some Puritans named, get this, oh, Increase and Cotton Mather. No wonder they were so angry and burning witches all the time because they had such awful names and goofy hats, right? And for the record, these guys who started this theology also did help lead the Salem witch trials, so I'm sure there's no weird overlap there at all. Sound like fun people to meet at a party. And um, so they, they find this one word in First Thessalonians, and they build a theology around it. It gets popularized by a guy named John Nelson Darby. He was an Irishman living in England. He wrote and edited, a, or he edited rather, a Bible called the Schofield Bible that became wildly popular in colonial America. And boom, suddenly overnight, the rapture had taken off. Everybody was captivated by this theology. Now, the problem with this theology, ultimately, in my mind, it, 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 more so than it being built on just a single Greek word and a single letter in one part of the Bible, the bigger problem with it is that as it's run rampant in so many of our churches, specifically evangelical and Pentecostal churches, and, and maybe you've been at a church or followed a preacher or a pastor or read books that uplifted this theology in the past, the problem with rapture theology is that what we believe about the end informs the way we live in the present. And to underscore that, I'm going to share a bit about Mark Driscoll. I promise the sermon's going to get better in a moment, all right? Um, if you know who Mark Driscoll is, you're like, wow, this is the world's worst message. So um, Mark Driscoll was nicknamed the angry pastor. He was a prominent multi-site church pastor, preacher, author in the Seattle area, led a church called Mars Hill Church. There's a great podcast right now called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I commend it to you if you want to learn about the uglier side of Christianity, I will say content warning, if you're someone who has suffered trauma in the past, do some research, learn about what they talk about, because it is graphic. If you have kids, not a great uh, podcast to listen to with kids in the room. I know, you're like, it's a podcast about a preacher and kids can't listen. Mark Driscoll's not a good person, okay? Um, so he, uh, being the angry pastor, one day uh, a lot of his staff, dozens of them, brought charges against him in their church discipline. And, uh, and alleged you know, a culture of abuse and bullying in the workplace. Shock, I know. Um, and, and also we learned that in addition to being a bully from the pulpit, he was also an incredibly bigoted and, and uh, misogynistic and homophobic person online when writing comments on forums under pseudonyms. So 
He was removed from leadership in his church. That multi-site church um, is no more. It's been turned into a bunch of little local churches. But good news, he's pastoring again. All right, I'm done with this rabbit trail because there's no justice in the world. Here's why I brought up Mark Driscoll. He's a big believer in rapture theology. In fact, he was giving a talk at a conference on the subject of the end times. And he was trying to make this sort of offhanded remark and joke about environmentalism and masculinity, and he always always seemed to get hung up on what he saw as non-masculine men. That was a big issue. He needs to go to therapy about that. And um, he had this little one-handed joke about if you drive a minivan, you're a mini-man, which... First of all, as a student of comedy, I find offensive because it's not even really a joke. It's just like two words that kind of sound the same. Uh, second of all, as someone shopping for a minivan right now, I want to be like, Mark, 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 Mark. Minivans are dope. Have you ever ridden in one? There are cup holders for days. It's like a spaceship in there. You should honestly take one for a test drive. But thirdly, what sounds like an offhanded joke is actually something he meant people to take seriously because his underlying point was this. If God's going to come back and take up all the good people and annihilate everyone else and burn up the world and build a new one in its place, then who cares what we do with it? Why does it matter if we take care of the earth? Why does it matter if we drive vehicles that consume less gas? Why does it matter if we frack or pump every ounce of oil out of it or do whatever, deforest the rainforest, why does it matter? Why does any of this matter? Do you see the nihilistic endgame that this theology creates? None of it matters. And so it sounds like an offhanded comment from a guy that's easy to kind of poke a finger at and make fun of is actually he's saying the quiet part out loud of where a rapture theology, an Im, what I find to be an improper understanding of the end, can lead Christians to misbehave and live violently against their own creation in the present day. Are you with me? Amen. Anybody still with me? Am I on my own rabbit trail right now? It's okay. I probably am. Here's the point. If somehow belief in God leads us to be less caring, then we are worshiping something less than divine. If somehow our belief in God leads us to be less caring today than we were yesterday, then we are worshiping something less than divine. That is why what we believe about the end matters. So an improper reading of that Revelation passage sounds a lot like the rapture. But if you look at the broader teachings of the New Testament, and remember Paul who wrote 1 Thessalonians and that one Greek word that got pulled out to be the rapture? Well, if you look at Paul's larger theology, you can begin to see a vision of the end that actually begins today. And it's a lot, lot more holistic and a lot more healthy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says this, So then if anyone is in Christ... That person is part of the new creation. The old things have gone away, and look, new things have arrived. If anyone is in Christ, he says, that person is part of the new creation. We're going to keep reading in a second, but just pause here and recognize this is a single line that helps to sort of sum up so much of Paul's theology that we see throughout of his letters. We can't sit here and read every letter this morning, but the point is this. Paul sees the end and sees the kingdom of God's arrival on earth as sort of a here and not yet understanding. That the kingdom of God is both here and not yet here. 
right? That there are, it's kind of like when we say we, we get little tastes of heaven on earth. Have you ever been in a moment where you felt like you could see the kingdom of God breaking through upon the earth, where you felt like, man, I see it, right? Have you ever been in that kind of a moment? And sometimes it's just a moment. So it's this idea that this new creation that Revelation is talking about isn't something we just wait for, kind of like the resurrection we talked about last week, isn't just something we wait for, but in fact, God is calling us into that life right now, that that eternal life, that new creation life is something that God is not just ushering us into, but is ushering the world into through the body of Christ, which God calls the church. And so Paul goes on to say this, all of these new things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Remember that phrase, ministry of reconciliation. In other words, Paul continues to write, he says, in other words, God was reconciling the world to God's self through Christ by not counting people's sins against them. God has trusted us with this message of reconciliation. And so, here's the work we have before us. So, we are ambassadors who represent Christ. God is negotiating with you through us. We beg you, as Christ's representatives, be reconciled to God. God caused the one who did not know sin to be sin for our sake, so that through him, we could become the righteousness of God. That word reconciled, ministry of reconciliation, be reconciled, Paul says. It's this Greek word that means being restored to favor in a way. Think of it as being restored to that original vision and intent that God had for you and for me and for us and for creation. It's that like Garden of Eden paradise vision that God has and went sideways somewhere along the way. And rather than simply saying, I'm going to burn it up and build a new one, God says, I want to see that restored, renewed, reconciled through you, the body of Christ in the world today. It's this restorative, renewing, reconciling kind of ministry, kind of end that we are called into. Now, I want to say the kind of end that I'm describing is what Christians throughout the history of the church, if you ask St. Augustine and you said, hey, what do you think about the rapture? He'd say, the what now? Right? Uh, Christians throughout the history of the church and Christians throughout the globe today, Methodists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, the broad swath of Christians share a common vision of the end, which is one that is born of restoration and renewal and reconciliation, not from Jesus coming back, scooping up folks and burning what's left. Right? That is a uniquely American understanding. And so as those who are called into this reconciling work, what then is our task today? If we understand the end is about God not burning it up and building a new one, but restoring and renewing and reconciling what is already here back into God's original vision of love, what is our work today? Paul says that Christ is our key. That to receive the love of God through Christ, to walk in our lives in the image of Christ, and to set the world on a path that is Christ-like, that is the work that we have before us today. And it's not work that we're going to complete in this lifetime. On this All Saints Day, we can remember and reflect and give thanks for the ancestors who have come before us, who have handed us unfinished work, and trust us to be good stewards and to hand that to the generations that come after. But this is work that is meaningful, and it is work that forces us to care about ourselves, about others, and about our world. There's three questions I hope that we can hold as we leave this All Saints Sunday, as God calls us to be about a reconciling ministry for us and others. 
First question is, how is God leading me to receive unearned grace today? This is a ministry of personal reconciliation. Some of us like to skip this one because we like self-loathing. We like to think little of ourselves. Maybe we were raised in a church that taught us to think very little of ourselves. Notice I didn't say undeserved grace. I said unearned grace. Sometimes we think that if we work hard enough, maybe God will love us more. Maybe we'll love ourselves more. The reconciling work that we have before us on a personal level is to simply receive the unearned grace of God that says, as you are, whether you're living your worst day or your best day, as you are, with all the work you may have ahead of you that I call you into, but as you are, can you receive the grace and the love and the mercy of God that says, you haven't earned it, but you do deserve it because I said so, Susan. Because I said so, Pam. It's not earned, but it is deserved. How is God leading me to extend, to extend unearned grace today? This is what I would call our relational ministry of reconciliation. So when Michael, who has never offended me in my life, when, when Michael, I love you, Michael, when Michael does something outside and, and makes fun of my, my, my thinning hairline and steps on my shoe and does everything to get in my way after church this Sunday, how can I extend unearned grace to my friend to say, if I treat everybody the way that I think they are meant to be treated, I think we know what kind of world that creates in the end. How can we extend grace to one another? Those of you who are at home right now, how can, how can in your grocery line today at the grocery store, how, come, how can at the soccer game this afternoon when the ref blows the call, how can in your phone call with your mother who is so passive aggressive you cannot stand it? Love you, mom. It's not directed at you. How can we extend the unearned grace of God to others in our lives today. And lastly, my friends, don't miss this because the world is bigger than us and our problems. How can we establish justice today? This is what I would call global reconciliation. This is that great mighty work that the great cloud of witnesses has handed to each of us. And if it feels heavy, then good, it is. And yet, there's a lightness to accepting that you and I and not nobody in this room are going to complete this work. And not anyone in this room is going to establish all of the justice all of the time. When I talk about justice, I'm talking about restoring the world to the way that God would see it be. Maybe for you that means eliminating uh, gender inequity. Maybe for you that means eliminating racism. Maybe for you it means sticking up for a marginalized person that nobody else in the community sees. Maybe for you it is writing your representatives. Maybe for you it is working to reform an institution from the inside. Maybe for you it is marching in the line. Maybe for you it is picking up the phone to initiate an uncomfortable conversation. I don't know the kind of justice work that God is calling you into. What I do know is that God is calling. So three questions we have to hold today is those called to a ministry of reconciliation, a ministry that says God is not done with this earth, a ministry that says Jesus is not here to take some of us, God is here for all of us, a ministry that says how can I receive the unearned grace of God today, how can I extend the unearned grace of God today, how is God leading me to establish justice in the world today, just today. 
And in the end, I trust that we'll see a vision not unlike John, and it's a good one. And all God's people said, amen.